0: Hi, welcome to Orthodoxy. This is a channel dedicated to small o orthodoxy which is for Protestant, Catholic and Orthodox alike. Today I'm joined by Matt Miller of Logos Made Flesh, dedicated to analyzing and explaining symbolism, some of the most interesting movies out there. Uh, So Matt, uh, recently you released a video about the movie Arrival and analyzed some of the symbolism within that film. And you, you said that you think it summarizes the main focus of the channel quite nicely. What, a, in particular, drew you to this movie and how does it speak to what you're all about at Logos Made Flesh?
1: I think, um, I, I, I don't know, got interested in, obviously do a lot of videos, but Arrival fascinated me by the idea of, of language and how language, um, how we interpret language. And I think that's a fundamental, um, Uh, thing that I do on my channel, which is to interpret not language, but the language of film, symbolism, and there's a lot of overlap between the meaning of words and how we interpret words and how we interpret meaning in people's, uh, you know, what they communicate, and how films communicate those things, unspoken things which are which are said in through film, just like we say things through words. So um, rivals about that and uh, I found it very interesting and particularly I found it interesting, I wanted to do a three-part, um, I had an idea of a three-part uh, series starting with Memento, moving to Arrival and then on to Signs and perhaps uh, another movie called uh, Magnolia, which came out in 1999. Um, but the idea was to talk about um, uh, the problem of evil, and uh, the problem of evil often is—it's um, classified or termed. I, I'm going way too far into this, but uh, um, it's a—the um, problem of evil is often said that how can a good and all-loving uh, good an all-good, all-powerful God still allow evil and suffering in the universe. Evil and suffering exist in the, in the world, and therefore God cannot be all-good or he cannot be all-powerful uh, uh, because otherwise evil and suffering would not exist. And so um, I got me thinking about memento arrival and signs um, and the idea that the answer to the problem of evil is the answer of we don't know the future. And that's always the part that we don't know. And it's what we don't know, uh, which could very well hold the key, the answer um, to that question. So atheists take the problem of evil one way, Christians take it another. But from where we both stand, we both stand in the present, not knowing the future. What we do is we know the past. And so we look back to the past to find evidence and um, you know, to try to infer, try to come up with Um, how the world works, what it means, why we exist, the meaning of the world. And atheists look to the world, they look to the past, they look to the pain and suffering, they look to everything that's existed up to this point, and they say, how can the world, um, I mean, uh, clearly the world is evil, clearly the world is chaotic, clearly there is no meaning or purpose in the world, because if there was, uh, we should see it by now. And my answer, the Christian answer is, is that, well, but in the past, we see that there was meaning and purpose. There has been points where pain and suffering, evil has resulted in good. So good has, has been transitioned, transformed. Into, so for instance, World War II was a, a great evil, a, a scourge that, uh, you know, as we still are reminded of to this day. But we see that good resulted from that. Good came out of it, even if pain and suffering did exist. Um, and so we don't know the outcomes, the thing that's going to happen in the end. So that got me thinking about Memento and, uh, and Arrival and how those two movies are the polar opposite to each other. And uh, you've seen Memento, right? haven't you, mm-hmm. Marcus? Yes. So um, the idea that Memento, what it does is it, is it frames the, uh, the narrative, um, the narrative is uh, structured in a completely the opposite way that it, that normal life occurs, which is to say everything goes backwards. So you start with the end and then move backwards scene by scene by scene to the beginning which has the effect of severing the cause and effect relationship between this event and that. So you have a cause, but you don't have the effect. The effect came before the cause, which in our minds doesn't create any uh, any continuity and therefore it destroys the um, the meaning from each of those two things. So we can't see the relationship. Um, and in essence, it puts us in a place where we are right now. We don't know the future. Um, right now, presently, we don't know what will happen tomorrow. Like you know, when coronavirus happened a few weeks ago, we had no idea that this was going to happen in our world. And now it's happening. And so we see the world vastly differently than we did just a few months ago. We stood in a place where we stand right now not knowing the future, not knowing what tomorrow will bring. And therefore, we cannot know even the meaning of this present moment, the complete meaning in this present moment. So I think I've gone way too far into this. Have I, are you doing all right, Marcus? Does no, that make sense?
0: That's good. Um, certainly interesting to me, and clearly, therefore, you believe that movies have a greater role than just mere entertainment, which a lot of people assume um, is not a, maybe as respected as other art forms for the transcendent experience, you're speaking to those more existential themes. But uh, I think something that you bring across in your work is, are the, precisely those themes and the seminal part- importance of some of our favorite movies, which people might um, overlook and take for granted. So uh, with that in yeah. mind, then what role do you think, at this, especially at times of crisis like this coronavirus, what role can good films have for us?
1: I... I think that storytelling just in general, um, and that would be to take away just even not looking at movies and specifically, but stories are the foundation to our life. I mean, it, stories are really who we are. And there's many different expressions of those stories, like just sitting down uh, in the morning with a loved one or coming home after a day of work and just sharing a story about what happened during your day. Um, every story is a a means of, Bring some meaning or semblance to our lives. And the best stories, the greatest stories, the ones that people think about and put down, I mean, stories are a means of of processing information, of all the chaotic information that we have. And we put them in an order, uh, meaning, that uh, helps us see um, how the world works and helps us to laugh and to enjoy life and to, um, I don't know, express ourselves and have people, um, you know, you know, express themselves back. I mean, it really is stories are not different from language, just communicating. So we communicate in words and language, we speak the same language. And as we communicate, we use those words to express ourselves, but stories are not different from that. So uh, they're just a form of communication. So it's so fundamental to who we are. We don't think about them. Um, So when you get to um, movies and their particular expression is that you have you know visual stories um and I think that uh, when people think deeply about the world and they put those things together they can they can affect us in pretty profound ways they can help us to to see our world differently um, I'm trying to think here we have um i don't know how you want me to express this, but I have some ideas about this like uh um, the nature of who we are um expressed through stories um When we think about who we are, you particularly, I mean, you have an an Irish accent, right? Because you came from Ireland, right? That's right. So your place, your people, your position in the world has been defined by events that have have been around you and you grew up with, the history, the people, all those kind of things. Whereas somebody else could have a very different perspective, a very different point of view. Um, But (coughs) your, your story is intimately related to who you are. And telling that story about all the important details in your life and how they weave together, cause and effect, cause and effect relationships, um, it uh, it defines us. And the story we tell about the larger aspects um, of the world, how the world works, where it's going, where it's headed. We have, um, uh, I, I think about, <clears throat> in this sense, I think about uh, Star Wars. Um, you've seen it, right? Yeah. I think about the old,
0: uh, the old good Star Wars. Is
1: it? <laughs> yeah, I'm talking about the first trilogy, the first trilogy, the original, right? And I'm thinking about uh, the. You know, a lot of people think that movie was just a movie for kids. It was a movie for, um, uh, a movie for. Um, it's it's cartoons and it's cartoonish and it's got toys and you know all that kind of stuff. But if you think about the profound aspect of that movie, the lightsaber itself, how when Lucas originally told about his father. He's given his father's sword, his lightsaber, and Luke is able to when he when he's told about the good and noble image of his father. Obi Wan says, you, "Your your father was a cunning warrior. He was a great pilot, and he was a good friend." And he says, "This reminds me." And he hands him his father's lightsaber, and he says, "This was your father's sword. It's the sword of a Jedi. You know, for a more civilized age, you know, before the dark times, before the Empire." So basically, he says, "This lightsaber represents something. It represents who you are. Your parents." Your parent, the image I'm telling of your parent, your identity is bound up in with this good and noble image of your family. So this is the story that Luke adopts for himself. He, he decides that this is who I am. I wanna be like my father. I wanna be that good and noble image that I have of my father. And, um, and all the things that he said. So Luke sets out to do exactly that. He sets out to be a good Jedi, to be a, you know, noble, a great pilot and a good friend and all those different things. And then you get to the Empire Strikes Back And when he finds out, Luke, I am your father, you know, when Darth Vader says, Luke, I am your father, when he thinks he's supposed to be killing Darth Vader because Darth Vader, Obi-Wan had said, was the one that killed his father. Right before that happens, right before that happens, Luke has his hand taken from him, but more importantly than his hand was his lightsaber, his father's lightsaber, his father's sword. And that sword represented the story that he was being told or the story that he had been told and the one that he adopted for himself. So this profound aspect of stories which we adopt for ourselves, which we tell ourselves, defines where we come from. It's where we come from, but ultimately it's where we're headed, where we're going. And oftentimes we in the world, that story that we tell is bound is it's it's um it's rubbing up against contrary stories, contrary evidence. And it's it's how we manage those stories, how we keep telling that story, how we keep going back to that story, reshaping it, refashioning, re-editing it. All those different things are really important, and we see those aspects in film, those things that we are intimately connected with our own lives, who I am, who my parents were, uh, where I'm headed, where I'm going, what's my purpose, what's my destiny, all those things are bound up um, uh, in in stories, but particularly we see them expressed in movies, and we see them being uh, how movies are telling a story, we can also begin to identify, but also begin to edit and transform our own stories in the same way. Uh, to think about new new thoughts. So Arrival, the video I just did was about language and Wittgenstein, uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein said the, the limits of my language are the limits of my world. So the evidence or the information that we have up to this present time is the language that we speak. It's the stories that we tell, the story that we've told up to the present, that's the limits of our world. But each moment that we're adding to our lives, each moment that we're living, we're finding that there's new evidence, new, new possibilities, new meanings that are found uh, that are being attached to that, that story that we've been telling up to this present. And we have to either, we're we're right now in the present trying to work out, um, trying to interpret, to accept, to re, um, to reinterpret the information that we've had in the past. Um, I'm sorry, I'm going off on this real quick, Marcus, but just one more thought, just one more thought about this is that in my video on arrival, which I didn't talk about, one thing I didn't talk about or is that the, um, the circle, the hermeneutic circle, the thing which tells us how we see meaning in the world, because we're looking back to our memory, the things that hold together, and we're interpreting the world. So when we have a piece of information, and you add another piece of information, those two items are interpreted together. Then you add a third piece, and all three pieces have to be interpreted together. So you have to either, you know, figure out how these pieces work together. Well, it's kind of like, do you know why we experience? have you ever heard about this idea about why we experience uh, time speeding up as we age? We talked about this before.
0: Yeah. I came to it really through your work and through conversations with you.
1: Yeah. So it's, it's the hermeneutic circle. It's the idea that why do we feel that time is speeding up? Well, as we age, each moment is becoming less, less than the one before because as a percentage of our life, each moment each let's just say year if we look at at the year the age of one it was the whole of our life age of one whole of our life but by two one year was now just a half of our life and at three it was a third and at four it was a fourth and you can see this radical transformation that takes place particularly from the age of one to 20 where the time dilation the time change the time shift that occurs because each moment that we add to our lives we're finding that it's it's not the same as it was before. Now it evens out or it levels out by the time we get to about 2024. It starts to even out a little bit, even though as it changes over the times, over the years. And I think now it's like we've, we realize every decade that goes by that we go, hey, doesn't quite feel the same now. Yeah. But before when we were kids, it was like, you know, when you're 14 versus eight, there's a vast difference in the time dilation that occurs between uh, 14 and eight. And that is, that's all a matter of interpretation, how we see the world. So hence. The, language we, uh, the limits of our language are the limits of our world. The way we see the world right now presently is what we see from past looking backwards. But we got a whole boundless, uh, limitless universe out there somewhere in the future that possibly could have an end that we think and believe will have an end that we're all at where it ends will be the meaning of it all. So Excellent. anyway, I've, I've gone off on way, way too much, but.
0: Thank you for that, Matt. Um, so basically, just to take it back, can we go back to your own story as it were and what really um was the inspiration well you've already spoken to the inspiration but can you tell us about the origin of the channel and um how it first came about
1: yeah um yeah, I started uh, in 2016, uh, I think late to uh, early 2016. I, I did a video, which was on the Gospel of Mark, I thought about doing some stuff I'd written for my channel, which was a lot of Bible stuff I've, I have a history, um, a background in interpreting the Bible, which I find very interesting. Um, but I just was in a malaise, not quite knowing what to do. I didn't really have any te- teaching opportunities. I'm a teacher by nature, but not really any opportunities. So I said, you know what, I'm going to sit down and I had an idea about what I could do. So I made this little video, short little video about which gospel to read first and got in front of a, had a friend who had a green screen and stood up in front of it and then did some kind of, you know, some animations around it. And... Um, I just thought that I got some good reception from the people that I talked to and they really enjoyed it. So I did about four, five, six videos into Mark. And about the time, about six video, I was saying by that time that Mark is like a movie. The gospel of Mark is like a movie, 16 chapters long, about an hour and a half to read it. It's not long to read, about an hour and 15 minutes to an hour and a half to read it out loud. Um, but the length of time is remarkably similar to a movie. So I was trying to make the point that the way that stories work, even they worked 2,000 years ago in this this book of Mark, is not different from what we do when we go and watch a movie in a movie theater. It wasn't meant to be different. So when we go and we read a, here's a sermon or a homily in 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 service and in church um, or mass, we hear. Um, somebody taking a small bit from a larger story and basically expounding on a small portion of of a much longer story but it used to be it used to be that the the message of a book like the book of mark or or luke or whatever was the message itself so you would hear that read in its entirety and so nothing was broken up. Nothing was uh, separated from its context. So just like we're talking about the hermeneutic Circle and how everything goes together, when you look at a book and you see that it's put together and it's put together in certain ways where the meaning is bound up in its position, in its place. And oftentimes I think that most people, they go watch a movie and they enjoy the experience of a movie uh, because they're not chopping it up. And we don't interpret movies. We don't go have a a discussion about a movie before we've watched the entirety of the film. So those two aspects, Bible, how the Bible's supposed to be read, how the movies are supposed to be interpreted. I just found that there was so much resistance to interpreting the Bible that way uh, in terms of literature, in terms of story that people had their own preconceived ideas about how to interpret the Bible. I just put the Bible on hold and said, you know what, I'm going to go and talk about movies because people don't typically have a a a visceral reaction when you say here's how the film is supposed to be interpreted because nobody has really that much buy-in to how something is interpreted they go oh that's interesting that's an interesting point of view but if you tell them that's this is how the Bible's meant to be interpreted boy you've got some more going on there because my teacher says this your teacher says that whatever they don't even i mean people don't even know why they believe certain things they just know that their teacher the person that they respect trust doesn't see it that way and then they they gravitate towards that. So so rather than talking about the Bible as literature and how it works and how it functions and how we can know what it means, let's just go over here and talk about movies. And then we can say what by by analogy, I can say, well, if we see these types of, of symbolism, irony, illusions, double entendres, those type of things, structural elements, parallelism, you know, chiastic structures, whatever, we see all those things in movies or inclusios, we see those in movies. And then we can go, well, look, it's not, it's, it was here before. It was here long before. And when you start to see the relationship, people go, oh, well, that's what it's doing. It's not like, people like to think that the the Bible is somehow otherworldly. Even if it is supernatural, even if it is spirit inspired, uh, it's, it's language. It's how we communicate. It's not something other, something, um, that we can just like the Bible. You remember the Bible code?
0: Uh, no, not particularly.
1: In the early two thousands, late late nineties, there was a thing called the Bible code, and they found that if you go to the Bible and you look up um, every every couple letters, like you know every three letters, oh, yes. you could sometimes find phrases, sometimes find these words, sometimes find meaning, where where no meaning nobody would find meaning that way, but, but through computers, they were able to find all these different things, but they found out you could do it to Moby Dick too, just the same way because by happenstance, by so many different, you can find that if you're looking for it, but, but human language isn't meant to be that way. But people were saying, well, the Bible unique. It's different. So we can find in these codes somehow meaning, which wasn't, and I'm like, for what, you know, it's, it's crazy. So, um, I would say first off the Bible is a human book. It's a human book. No one denies that it is. It's a human book, Um, but people have the misperception. A lot of people have the misperception that it's, it's, um, it's not. Um, Anyway,
0: I guess uh, it's the way Christ has two natures. He's God and human. It also speaks to the Bible being divine and human, as it were. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, So uh, I imagine you also receive some resistance About about symbolism in general because people think that we are reading meaning into things that aren't there, but Mm -hmm. but something that comes across with your channel and with the symbolic world, which some of your viewers might know is that meaning is built into the universe as it were. And the patterns are there to be interpreted and you are trained to um, pick out those patterns. Whereas some of us are just watching mindlessly don't really do so. So do you have an academic background in symbolism and uh, in those elements of language that you were discussing before?
1: I have a, a degree in biblical studies, a minor in biblical studies from Biola University. My major is in social science, which basically is history, religion, Uh, economics, uh, politics, world religions, you know, it's a basically grab bag. It was to be a high school history teacher that I I went to school. So um, I'm, um, but, um, so that's, but, but my education, while it was started as as biblical, minor in biblical studies, I took that, I took that and spent probably 20 years with one particular question from the gospel of john which led me to consistently read on uh aspects of 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 how we know what we know so i won't go into this all these things because you can watch my other (laughs) channels and things like that people talk about but we've talked about before the gospel of john the meaning of water in the gospel of john what does water mean john 3 5 jesus says you must be born of water in the spirit first john 5 6 says he came by water and blood, not by water only, but by water and blood. And in those two passages written by the same person, you have a shorthand reference for someone else. But the question is, how do we know? And is it possible to know what um, symbols mean? Because in that sense, it's not just water. We're talking about something more significant than simply the water on the table. There's something more there. What does it mean to be born of water? What does it mean to say that Christ came by water? Those are aspects of language, those are symbolic words, so those are, uh, those are words with symbolic meaning. Um, actually, all words have symbolic meaning, but they, but they are um, unique, dis- distinct, not, not, not just the, the regular meaning of word water, there's something more there. Um, let, let me just, you, you noted, you, you said something earlier that I think I need to go back to, is you said that, that there's patterns in the world that we can interpret, and that's left up to debate. That's the part where people, I think, between Christians and non-Christians, uh, you have a real sharp divide. So where, do, where is meaning found? Meaning is a product of the mind, okay? So meaning is the product of something you do and what I do. And together, we share the meaning, you know, we, 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 we infuse physical things with symbolic meaning so that we can kind of read each other's minds. thats basically what we're doing. Meaning is a product of my wanting to read your mind and you're wanting to read my mind. And so when we do that and converse together, we're creating meaning, we're infusing things with meaning and you're, you're doing the reverse. So I have to interpret the meaning which you're creating. So if we see that, meaning is a product of two minds. Now in the world, rocks, volcanoes, trees, apart from human beings, do they have meaning? And that's the question of, you know, if a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound? And the question is, well, what do you mean by sound? Is it something that has to be interpreted by a mind? If it's something that's interpreted by a mind, then yes. Or if there's nobody around and there are no people around, then no, it wouldn't be. There would be no meaning because it's, there's no human beings. But the question is, is there a larger mind? Is there a greater mind which governs all the world? And there are aspects in the world which are meaningful and have been placed there as meaningful objects, meaningful things. Um, and that, re- that requires that there would be a mind that would have done those things. Now, a lot of times we look at like alien things on the planet, we, we, uh, you can see that people do it, they, they look at Mars and there might be a face that they can see on Mars. It looks like a face, have you seen that before? Mm-hmm. There's actually a word for it, a term for it, I can't remember what the term for it is right now, but people, um, we're, we're meant, we're meant, we're, we're programmed to see faces. So if I put a smiley face, we see a face in a, in a drawing that's very bare, two dots, uh, you know, a, a U underneath those two dots, and you're like, hey, there's a smiley face, right? Because we're programmed to recognize a face.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but when we, um, here, hold on, let me close my door real quick. Um, so we see faces, where no faces actually exist. So nature by, uh, can accidentally produce something that looks like a face. So two dots and a, and a U underneath, and we go, hey, there's a face. It was intentionally drawn there for me. Well, you, at that point you go, well, was it? Because sometimes two dots and a, a U underneath, it can, can really have the impression of, of intentionality, but it may not be intentional. It could be just the, like the Bible code, like and a happy accident, which we're interpreting to have meaning. So when we talk about science, when we talk about science, and we talk about what we can find through science, there's a real question about whether or not things have meaning, things are there because of a divine mind. And I think you cannot know, you really cannot know until we arrive at the end. And that's part. So that's where stories are different because stories are bounded by a context. So if I go to watch a movie, I know that a movie is meaningful in a different way than nature is, okay? Nature may be meaningful in that way, I just don't know. But I certainly know that if I watch a movie, I know for one thing, there was a person that wrote this, there was a person that directed it, there was a person that produced it, there was a person who thought about what they were doing and are trying and are doing it for a reason, not simply because they don't have any other, anything better to do. They have a purpose in doing it. And therefore they're communicating something. It's an act of communication, an act of communication, which is meant for me to interpret, meant for me to to think about. So those two aspects, what you just said. So the question is, is the world meaningful in this same way? And I leave it up for people to decide. I'm not gonna make, but but I think it's a good enough thing to say, if we aren't saying that something is meaning, because there's people who take the world, um, Am I going too long, Marcus? No, i was Because when you talk to an atheist or you talk to a non-Christian, um, oftentimes they'll take the meaning that I've, you can find in a movie and they'll say, there's nothing there. It's all random. It's all chance. It's all whatever. So they'll take how they see the world and they'll read it a story that way. Well, there's nothing more than just a story that happened. They'll take the baseline like, you know, Transformers and they'll say it was about a bunch of machines and technology and everything like that. And it was big explosions and hot girls. And that's all it's about, which it could be very well be. That's all it's about. Right. But but they won't see anything beyond just the physicality of something that's there. Or at least they'll deny that there's anything remarkably there because they're taking how they read the world and they're applying it to how they read a story. Now, Christians do it almost the exact opposite way. We take what's in a story and we see how stories are meaningful and how meaning can be infused and everything like that. And then we take that meaning and we say, that's how the world should be interpreted. And again, those are two vastly different things, or they could be two vastly different things. We don't have evidence of, I mean, we have some evidence of God, but we don't have direct access to God in the way we have direct access to the script writer, story writer, or anything like that. Um, so the question of did a mind produce this versus did a mind produce this? we are um we're asking that question, and so the question of meaning is an interesting one, and I think we should recognize that in talking to people.
0: Yeah, absolutely. um so this speaks to one of your videos, which I guess we can come back to later, but in one of them, based on the movie by the Cohen Brothers, No Country for Old Men, you discuss Blaise Pascal's uh, wager. And against the certainty of death, making a, a claim on one thing or another, are you going to choose to follow the meaningful life or are you going to insist that there's a life without meaning and kind of bet your house on that? As I, were, I guess that sort of speaks to your points there that it's up to the person to decide, did, are you going to risk everything on meaninglessness or do you really live in a world of meaning and are you going to follow that to its... Yeah. logical conclusions, once you have that preconception, or uh, take that first. I
1: I think we can't, I think, I mean, by by nature, I mean, you you talk to evolutionists, materialists, atheists, whatever, and they all recognize that there is, um, that there's an evolutionary advantage to religion, that, I mean, so basically, if you look through the history of the world, I mean, how did we get to this place? I mean, everybody recognizes that religion has an aspect to it. It's not like something, it it helped us produce children to risk death, to all do all those things. So we see that there's some kind of (coughs) physical advantage to believing, believing something about the world that we, um, that we can't see that is unknowable, or or to some extent is beyond us. Well, there we go. Um, So, so, and, And the question is, is that it it would seem that it's still important, that religious views are still important for doing those things. In fact, if you look at the studies, they say that the people who pass on their faith and are most resilient in life and things like that are the ones, they're they're Muslims, they're Orthodox, they're, they're, um, they're people who are separate from the world and they're very strident in their beliefs and their faith and they're the ones that are having kids, they're the ones that are reproducing, they're the ones that are moving on to the future, whereas the people who don't believe anything, the people who believe the things that the atheists are saying, the, you know, you have, um, who is the one, Richard Dawkins are saying and stuff like that, they're not having kids. They, they've stopped, they've given up, they've just said, why would I have, why would I risk something for this world? Let me just, I, I don't want to destroy the world. They have so many different beliefs about themselves that basically they've just checked out and they want to play video games. And you'd say, and you'd say Wait a second, who's surviving? Where's the survival? The survival comes from a belief system, a strong belief system that carries you into the future. So, um, so the question of, of no country for old men, that basically we have to risk. And that risk is a product of believing something, of valuing something, of, of saying that there's something greater right now than, what I, than, than whether just my enjoyment in life. I'm just gonna go around and, and, and not to say you know risking is not not necessarily not enjoyment it's just doing the hard thing it's doing the hard thing for a greater purpose a greater reason a greater destiny Mm -hmm. and we all recognize that we're going to die death is the end it's the absolute the finality but we have to as human beings believe in meaning we have to believe that there's something beyond us if we don't we just die I mean, it's fundamental to who we are. It's like oxygen to us. It's, it's what humans do. And yet we have a worldview out there right now, presently, that is actively saying that there's nothing of greater significance and value. And I'm like, we're living in a, um, uh, a, an upside down world that's saw, sawing off the branch it's standing on. Yeah. And it's
0: crazy. So, so um, this belief then is belief for, well, for us Christians is belief in a person rather than an abstract concept as it were and like we are personal relationships we it's a relationship of trust and you go, you go through life with that person the we the um or kind of oriented towards the future with our trust in christ and that he will come to, to join right. the world as it were so um this this focus on the end i find interesting as well as part of the appeal of your channel and um the biblical scholar nt right has focused a lot on eschatology, eschatology as it's called in Christian theology and the end of the world and how that impacts our everyday rather than just being something really abstract or of special interest only to an enlightened few or mm-hmm. really touches upon us all. And I think a part of the virtue of your channel, if that's not too <laughs> pretentious a term is no. that, um, presents those live questions to people, existential questions and give, gives them that focus through an art form as I said before that many people may nece- not necessarily um, rate as highly or see how fall of, potentially fall of meaning at least that it is. So thank you for that.
1: <laughs> oh, appreciate. It. Thank you.
0: So um, again just to take us back I would like to um, ask who inspired is there anyone in particular that inspired your love of movies and stories with, in your personal life
1: yeah i two people, my mom and my dad, so my mom uh, wrote a children 's story when she was young uh, uh, when I was younger she produced it she was in children 's music it 's called Sheep Shed. it 's a simple story about jesus it's it's an analogy a kind of c.s lewis analogy but it's from the parables of jesus which basically he's the good shepherd and he uh, and one sheep goes astray and he goes off after the sheep and he finds a sheep that's being that's broken has a broken leg and picks up the sheep and the wolf's chasing him and he gets the wolf away and he grabs the sheep and takes him back to the fold i mean it's it's just the parable of jesus but she made it into a musical she made it into a, a children's musical and uh we used to play it, we used to sing it, um, the music, the songs, and it just got into my heart. So um, just having that infused story. But my dad uh, was a teen suicide prevention counselor um, and just had a rough childhood, but is always he's just a fantastic storyteller where he takes everything daily life and can make it so funny, so amusing, and has everyone rolling, everyone laughing, uh, infectious personality, everybody loves him. And... But I was used to sitting down, listening to my dad, whether he's preaching on a Sunday morning or preaching at a, you know, something he'd been invited to or uh, speaking as he did as a teen counselor, he went to schools and did um, uh, drug and alcohol and suicide uh, seminars. So people, he'd stand up in front of entire schools, you know, 400, 500, 600, 800 kids standing there listening to this guy talk. And he would keep their attention because he's telling stories and they'd all listen to him. And I would listen to him. And I, and I was, as I grew older, I just probably innately, um, but I, I recognize the fascinating way that stories are applied in different situations and have slightly different meanings and are told slightly differently, depending on uh, the the the, sitting, the the situation, which uh, the biblical scholars call the uh, sits in Laban, the life setting of the of what's going on. So the point comes across in the context and the communication. So I found that fascinating. So great stories told in slightly different ways that have slightly different resonances and meanings based upon how they're told. So uh, that's how I got into it. Excellent.
0: And then at an artistic level, are there any particular actors or directors that you find particularly important and um, why are they so important for you? Yeah,
1: that's a, that's a tough one. People, it's like, uh, it's like me, um, uh people always want to say well can you rank your top favorite movies i just can't i i i can't i i I don't have that kind of critical mind where i say i like this person better than i like this person there's some that i go you know i'm not a michael bay uh uh, michael bay fan uh you know Bayham and everything like that i'm not an action i don't don't gravitate towards that kind of action i think um but i but i love action films i love indiana jones i love uh I love some Star Wars films, some are just terrible. I mean, I, I don't have any particular reason. Um, I, I know what I like, and I know probably that what I like is is more refined than just something that happened. I don't want to just see something that happened in film. I want to see some meaning, some emotion, some... Um, so th- whether it's Steven Spielberg or Christopher Nolan or all these different things, there's just a bunch of movies that just came together. And I just said, um, I just like movies. I just like stories. And I'll, I'll watch anything. Just like music, I'll, watch, I'll listen to country and I'll listen to classical. As long as I like it, I'll listen to it. Um, but if I don't like it, I'll just go, no, I'm not into that. So
0: um, I don't know why. So um, as we said before, there's a lot of theological themes. or Well, I would consider them the theological themes within your work and um, The Shawshank Redemption for example which you say is perhaps the greatest Christian movie ever made and um, I was just wondering are there any other movies that you haven't covered on your channel that you think um, express Christian themes at a a high level like that?
1: Yeah I say I I would say I'd say that Shawshank Redemption is the greatest Christian movie ever made for one reason. And I would say because it's the most, one of the lo- most loved movies of all time. And um, I think it, and because it's also deals with Christian themes, if you take those two things together, you say it's the greatest Christian movie of all time. There's some great and fantastic Christian movies that are overtly Christian. Um, so in that sense, I'm I'm kind of playing with two different ideas that the Shawshank Redemption is one of the greatest movies of all time, at least as far as IMDb is concerned and that it also deals with Christian themes in a positive way. For those two reasons, it's the greatest Christian movie of all time. Uh, But yeah, there's a lot of different movies. Um, You know, one of the ones I've been coming back to, two movies in particular that I'm thinking on the top of my head, are Magnolia and uh, Babbitt's Feast, which, um, which aren't necessarily talked about today. I've just been thinking about them more recently. But uh, Babette's Feast um, is about a woman, it's kind of like a, I don't know, 1700s, 1600s, 1700s movie, probably even later than that, um, about two, uh, a man with two daughters, and he's kind of a prophet. But anyway, it becomes an analogy between Catholicism and Protestantism. Basically, it's an analogy or uh, a, uh, an allegory that talks about... Um, two different Christian worldviews uh, and difference. And one worldview is a Protestant worldview, which is very austere, um, uh, you know, um, not wanting to quite enjoy life and thinking that if we don't enjoy life as much, we'll please God more. So let's not um, take of the world. Let's be separate from the world. Um, Let's help others to the point of almost being embittered by life itself. Like, Like, we can't be happy because if we're happy, if we're truly happy, then God won't be happy. So let's be, you know, always working, always, you know, motivated, always doing something to please God, where there's a different view in the world, which has the idea of enjoying food and good music and all sorts of different things. And these two worldviews come into um, uh, conflict with each other, where you find the one worldview saying, no, I can't be like that, and yet is drawn to that worldview, the, the Catholic more enjoy life worldview, and the other kind of recognizing the good in the other. And in the end, there's a sense of transcendence, a uh, very remarkable sense of transcendence, which well, I'm not gonna give away, but uh, um, but in terms of my own worldview, in terms of my own life, I was raised in a very austere home. I mean, not, not quite austere, I would say that my mom was raised in a far more austere home than myself. She came from, her, uh, my grandfather was Dutch, it's a pentecostal home um so he came to the united states and was Pente- and became a pentecostal when he was 20 years old so he already had the the dutch in him which was very uh uh yeah you know what, it, <laughs> you know what i'm talking about so he uh uh he came over here and um uh you know sunday reading of the bible had his own church uh, but straight and narrow um not a lot of frills um very hard, you know. I came out of World War II. I mean, he was 14 years old, and World War II is going on, and came over here when he was 20. But anyway, he. Um, then we had. Um, I think my dad kind of represented more the the enjoy life aspect. He came from a, an abusive home that got saved, um, and I don't think he was he he was Pentecostal as well, but also was more I think a little bit more worldly than my mom. Mm-hmm. Um, so those two aspects have kind of come together where I recognize that. Uh, enjoyment of life, um, but also being a Christian. The other one is Magnolia. Sorry, I went too far on that. Magnolia is um you, you have you seen Magnolia?
0: No. I mean, i'm ashamed to admit, sorry. So,
1: that's okay. That's okay. Um so it's it's uh Paul Thomas Anderson film. Uh he's he also did uh, There Will Be Blood. Um you seen that yeah so Boogie Nights. Um, I haven't seen Boogie Nights, but I've seen There Will Be Blood. Uh, he also did another um, Punch Drunk Love, um, The Master. He's done a few movies, but he's he's quite well respected. But in 1999, he did a film called um, Magnolia, which is one of those films which follows a uh, a very diverse cast of a very of a lot of different characters going through a lot of different points of view. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've seen like for instance the movie Crash or um, What's the other one called Love, uh, Love Actually, which is a British film. So if you have those t- films, you follow a bunch of different characters and then they, they kind of all kind of come together in the end. Um, and this movie particularly is about it, whether there's meaning in, the, in life, whether there's meaning. Um, and it starts out by talking about how stories have meaning but the world doesn't have meaning. And yet in the world, we find these odd things where there is meaning in the world it starts off by asking, and how can that be? How can that be? How can that be? And then you go through this series of chaotic random events, and then you get to the very end of this movie, which is very, I won't give away the ending to this one either, but just a transcendent aspect of God coming through. Um, and it doesn't quite say it that way. It doesn't say it that way, but, but there's this feeling of how can that be? how can that be? And it's, and it has that feeling of, are these two worlds di- the, these two worlds that we have divided between the natural world and the world of story. And sometimes the natural world ends up looking a lot like story um, and that's pretty remarkable. So, and the question is, is there a divine storyteller? Is there a narrator that's telling it all? So.
0: Yeah, thank you, Matt. Uh, so if we can now, Uh, I would like to look at some of those videos that you have done. Is that all right? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the first one I'd like to discuss is Groundhog Day, one of my personal favorites. Yeah. um, I'm just wondering what was the the main point of that movie that hooked you and uh, why was it so important for you to say uh, through your channel?
1: Yeah, I think I've think I read, uh, I, I mean, Groundhog's Day was a movie I saw. It was the first movie my wife and I saw together before we were dating. And so it just had, it just was a great film. They've grown up with it. But I think I read uh, an article in, um, what's that magazine? First Things that I told you you should write for. But <laughs> I read something on Groundhog's Day and they talked about the Pearl of Great Price and how Rhea's name means pearl. Um, and And there's an aspect at the very end of that film where Rita ends up, there's a slave auction in the end, or at least by a a man for a night kind of thing. And they're bidding, you know, it's an auction for a man. And they bid on Phil and the bidding goes up until Rita says, pulls out her checkbook and gives an exact number to what's in her checking out, $365.75, whatever it is. But you know, in that moment, what she's given is all that she has. So I was like, I, was, I think this is probably one of my earlier things, because this is before when I'm still doing Bible stuff. I thought, well, that's really interesting that in film, that it can be kind of interpreted the same way. So I, I ended up writing something on, on Groundhog's Day a long, long time ago on my own blog. And then when I did Shawshank and I did, I did No Country for Old Men, I was like, I need to do Groundhog's Day. Actually, I think I might have done Groundhog's Day secondly because I already had a script and I put it together and just walked through the whole thing. But I think it definitely, um, I didn't realize how much it wasn't, um, the symbolism of the film wasn't so much about the groundhog but it was about the repeat, repeating of the day, the repeating of the day being our own day, repeating over and over and over again ad nauseum. And the question is how do we escape that feeling, that depressive feeling of being stuck in the same day over and over again, finding no joy, no satisfaction, but really it's about fulfillment. The name's, his name's Phil, obviously a Puxitani film who's the groundhog. And then you have Phil, the man who represents the groundhog, there's a relationship there. But if you think of the word Phil and what Phil is, is he, uh, he's a guy named Phil is actually has a lack of fulfillment. He does, he's not filled up. He, he finds no satisfaction, no, no fruit, no, no joy in what he does. And it's really finding satisfaction in, a life that is never ending, repeating. It's the same day over and over. Obviously the book of Ecclesiastes too. So that's, um, that's why I was. And then the question is how we respond to that feeling. There's, there's three aspects to that. First, you can feel like, just like, I mean, it, it lays it out exactly how we, we go about life. First, we realize if there's no consequence, no action, no nothing in our life, we, we go on and we, we enjoy life as much as we want because there's not gonna be a payday in the end. We, we charge up the credit cards because we're never gonna have to pay those things back. So we do everything we want to. And then the second thing is is that once we realize that there is no fruit, no outcome no we're not really producing anything, then we can find even that even when we in, try to enjoy life we can't find any enjoyment in it because we're really not we're really not holding on to anything if i if I try to obtain something, enjoyment or satisfaction is ultimately empty just as much as anything else and therefore Phil quickly ends that he really wants Rita really wants Rita, but he can't get Rita Rita. Rita is that thing that which he, despite all of his freedom, despite everything that he has, he cannot obtain the thing which, um, well, he just can't obtain it. And so it leads to suicide. So if you cannot find any fulfillment to your your life, if you cannot obtain the things that you want, why keep on going through the suffering or pain of doing that? So those 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 aspects are deeply human. Even though it's a comedy, it's the most well, um, I wouldn't say well-known comedy. It's the, it, it's so so true to life, and because it has become essentially a holiday film, because it found a holiday that nobody ever talked about and was really just a grade school you know a primary school uh, you know holiday and now um if you 're going to have groundhogs day you can 't it 's the only thing you do it 's like rather than decorating the Christmas tree, you have to watch groundhog's Day because it 's something about true to life, and so we it 's it's a spiritual, I mean, just like Christmas, when you go to Christmas time and you remember the baby Jesus and you remember the story and what it means and all that stuff, just like that, Groundhog's Day has become like that. It's a confrontation with that same day that we're living every single day and saying, will this day be different? Will this day, will this year be different than the past? And even if it's not, how can I make it different? How can my perspective, how can my own attitude uh, change that? And I think that basically the, the element is, is that you have to die. That's that's the that's the that's the and that's the Christian answer. It's been the Christian answer for a long time, mm-hmm. obviously since Jesus. You have to die. Yeah. And, in, and dying is the right answer. You cannot live for yourself. You have to and obviously it's a, it's a Buddhist answer too. Buddhists, Buddhism has a slightly different take on it, but that aspect of emptying yourself, of saying that self cannot be yourself cannot be the North Star. If, you, if you, you make yourself the North Star, you're gonna be spinning in circles. You have to have that, that thing that's out there on the horizon, which causes you to go in that direction. Um, because if it's about yourself, you've, you've lost all sense of direction, so.
0: Thank you for that much. So um, you mentioned Ecclesiastes there. You also bring up Ecclesiastes in New Country for Old Men. And um, I just wanted to ask what, the same question, really. What, what is the main focus of No Country for Old Men? And why do you think that movie is so essential?
1: Yeah, I think uh, I, well, I got gravitated to No Country for Old Men primarily because it was one of those movies that just people had questions about. And it's a movie I had questions about. When I first watched it, I was like, what was that? What was that all about? And I found that if I find a movie that does that to me, like says, I don't understand it. And yes, it's, and yes, it's beautiful and well-told and profound. And you go, why would they do that? There is an answer. And if you just sit with something long enough, if you just watch it, repeatedly enough those answers will start to uh, to appear the the question that at the central at the heart of no country for old men is is moss dying off screen so about three quarters of the film the main central hero who we've been following the entire time the coen brothers basically just throw him away and that that's pretty remarkable it's not it's not totally unheard of today in literature and everything like that to kill off a main character or something like that but Um, In that particular film, it becomes the the defining element, which says that if that can happen to the main character, that can happen to the main character. I'm the main character of my own story. So what's to say my own story is going to have that good and happy ending? That I expect in a movie. So if I watch a movie, I expect for some some happy meaning, some resolution, even if it's not a happy ending, at least the character might still be alive at the end, that he might still be wandering, pondering, questioning, and there might be some resolution that he's looking for on the horizon. But No Country for Old Men basically says the central character, the guy who has it all together, he dies. And and it's so disconcerting and yet so true to life that you, you, we hear about things that happen in the news all the time, that we open up the newspaper and we say, here's a person, you know, was you know, 18 years old, newly married, and this has just happened in our own area, but newly married, went out and was raped and murdered by a next door neighbor. And you go, she was the main character of her own story. And did, and did, it, did it turn out the way that she thought it was going to turn out? And I think for me, when I watched No Country for a Man, I kept feeling this profound sense because in my own life at the time, I was feeling this very profound sense of, 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 of feeling that the things that I had done in life hadn't worked out the way that I had wanted. So we work for something, we go and we, we plow the field, we sow the seed, we do our thing, and we expect for a harvest. So we wait for it to harvest, we wait for the, the sun comes down, the, we wait for the sun, we, the, the rain comes down, and we're expecting for that harvest. And in our world, in our world, particularly the modern world, we have not learned to live with the the the, the disparity between expectations and the fulfillment of those expectations. We Turn on the microwave and it does exactly what we want. And if it doesn't, we throw it out and we buy a new one. I mean, we expect for a level of service and a level of, if I do this, then this will happen. If I do this, then this will happen. There's a direct relationship. And yet we know, underlying it all, that there's something profoundly um, troubling in the fact that that's not the way the world works. And that no matter how much we try, no matter how much, there's a day that's going to come where we're going to wake up to this morning, this morning, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to find out that I've got cancer and six months to live. And you go, and there's nothing I can do about it. And so in my own life, I was thinking, boy, this, if this is the real nature of the world. And the question is, can God exist in a world like that? Does God, that nature of evil, which exists underneath it? because our expectations are so high because our expectations are so high we have a real problem with the problem of evil. Whereas past generations who really went through the problem of evil, had their kids die, had their parents die, had all sorts of things going, they didn't, have, they didn't seem to have the problem of evil so much as we do. Because we, our expectations are so high and are, we, get, we bristle over the slightest inconvenience that if God can't make what I want happen today, then he's not worth serving because I can find someone else to do it for me. So my question was, is that, can God exist in a world like that? Can we, and so looking at No Country for Old Men was a challenge to my belief in God. It was a challenge to, um, and I think the Cohen brothers are actively, they're actively doing that. It's a, people have rightly said, it's a nihilistic film. It's a punch in the gut. They want you to go, what's the meaning of it all? But they're not being humorous like they typically are when they do it, like it's lighthearted and it's joking they take it very seriously in this movie. And I think that's what's more profound about it. It's like, can a police officer suffer for the law when he knows that the law does not really govern the world? So basically we're imposing a meaning on the world that the law, that morality, that all these things are important to maintain, important to fight for. And yet we know that, or at least we have suspicion that underlying it all underneath is that that's not really the way that world works. So our story is trying to override nature and somehow our story keeps running into what nature really is. And the Cohen's are saying, suggesting really strongly that the underlying nature of the world is chaos. It's chaos and it's not worth fighting for. So why not just eat, drink and be merry like the, like the, like the sheriff does at the very end? You know, Why fight for morality? Why fight for justice? Why fight for a better world? Why not just sit here and die? because you're all gonna die in the end anyway. So that's where it's leading to in the end. No Country for Old Men is the idea that there's nothing really worth risking for because by the time we're old, the world and safe world in which we were fighting for has long since gone. And it's not the world in which we are born. It's, and we're basically one foot in the grave anyway. Yeah. Anyway, I've talked too long about it, but um, I think that Pascal's wager though is, is hinted at. I, I don't know, it's a Cormac McCarthy novel. And Cormac McCarthy is a conservative, um, but I don't think he's particularly religious, even though he uses religious aspects, he's a conservative. I think he probably would lean on the more atheistic side, even if he's a conservative politically. Um, but that that idea of the coin toss um, and the randomness of death and betting our lives on something we can't guarantee is the central film theme of the film. And that's exactly how Pas- usually Pascal Pascal's wager is this term like um, if you're going to live in heaven or hell, if it, there's a chance that heaven and hell exist, um, and you're going to live eternity in heaven or eternity, wouldn't you rather believe in heaven than hell, even if there's a chance? That's not how Pascal termed it, because that's almost glib. It's almost glib. If you read what Pascal says in the Pensies, um, is that how you pronounce it? I think it's how you, the and uh, his meditation.
0: Best, oh, what, what was that? My French isn't the best. (laughs) I know.
1: Yeah. uh, It's the meditations, his thoughts on stuff. And he, he says, basically, I think he's exactly talking like the Coens. It's like, death is inevitable. It's the one thing we know, you know, that we don't have to, you don't have to say, he's, he's basically saying, you don't have to believe in God. It's still better to believe in God. If you have no evidence for God, it's still better to believe. And, and people, Christians particularly, they think, well, that's a that's a bad that's a bad argument i'm like no i don't think it is i think it's like belief comes in all sense certain forms and to believe because i must believe to live i must believe to live is a good argument because it life requires belief so why is that a seen as a bad argument it's not because we know that it's required of us we know it's always worked it's always been that way and if we pursue that our life could very end up being better It doesn't say that it's going to end up that way. It could all end up being jacked. But to say that if I have kids, my kids will more than likely grow up to be happy, well-adjusted adults, and I'll have grandkids someday and all those kind of things, and I'll have a a future to look forward to. But they could end up being misfits and and go to jail and become schizophrenic or whatever. There could be so many different things that happen to them. But is the risk worth life? Yes, it is. And... um, and nothing was ever gained by risking nothing, so it's inevitable. So I think that risking God is worth it. It's absolutely worth it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's part of life.
0: You have the cross either way, but uh, for our faith, you can have the cross and the resurrection. Is that for summary or? <laughs>
1: yeah, well, I would say that I mean, like, I'm not. I'm. It's a very. I, I don't want to. You know, I'm talking to people typically who don't believe at all, and that's who I have in mind. I have the people in mind that aren't, I'm not talking to the choir um, because, you know, there's so many people out there who, who, who just believe, and that's great. But, you know, I wrestle with doubts myself, but I would say my thing is, is that sometimes I don't know that there's going to be a resurrection, you know, but do, but, but is risking belief worth it? Yes, it is. It's worth it. So that's what I'm saying is that while I believe, while I believe I don't think that doubt is antithetical to belief. You know, the Bible says, you know, um, be patient with those who are doubting. Uh, it says, you know, that when they saw the risen Lord in Matthew chapter 28, that some still doubted and you're like going, how can doubt be part of life? It is so fundamental to life. And so to be, to, to say that to be faithful or to have faith is to eradicate all doubt and never have a doubt come to your mind. Um, I think is is unfair and it's it's just it's it's a lie um, because I think that doubt, especially when you have the book of Ecclesiastes in, in the in the Bible, that, that basically God made a world in which doubt was possible and therefore um, part of the experience of of being faithful
0: so I recently read uh, Tim Keller's book on suffering, and he discusses doubt and some of the, the lament in the Bible and how this is true to life. Uh, kind of consonant with what you're saying. For anybody that would like to follow those themes up, I'd recommend that book. I find it particularly yeah. helpful. And uh, there's others out there. Um, Oz Guinness has a book on doubt specifically, which might be of help to people. But um, yeah, so I'm glad that you've brought the the locus of that movie to our attention. It's so profound as it is. Uh, next, that I would like to discuss then is Mad Max, which was a surprising one to me, but the symbolism behind Mad Max, uh, could you speak to that a little bit and why it's such an interesting movie that some people might take for granted?
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I watched that movie probably eight or nine times, um, just by, my kids. People think I'm crazy, it was a rated R film, I brought my seven-year-old to it, mm-hmm. uh, or at least I, I let her see it after I seen it, saw it twice in the theater, I bought it, brought it home, and we ended up watching it as a family. And I told everybody, I said, I don't understand why it's a rated R. I, I asked the question. I don't know. There's some imagery that people have a problem with, but I'm like, I, I I don't think that milking women's breasts, you know, was was that big a deal in light of how it was done. Because we milk cows. I'm just saying, I mean, it's anyway, I probably said too much by now, but but uh what I am saying is I watched it so many different times and there was just these threads. And I would say sometimes there's a movie you watch and there's things that go. Well, that's kind of odd that they would do it that way. And I think that one thing that that came to my attention was the the chain of blood, the chain of blood that was connecting Max to Nux, how it becomes so important, so significant. And I just kept I kept thinking about it. Then I was like, well, that's kind of what when he walks up carrying Nux on his shoulder and he's tied to Nux with this chain of blood to his neck and to Nux. Uh, he comes up on splendid this gal who is part of these this group that's this group of females who has escaped from a Morton Joe and she's pregnant, and so this image of her being pregnant and 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 Max approaching her or being near her with with Nux on his shoulder and I was like what's inside of her it's a baby, and what is that baby how is that baby tied to her, by a chain of blood, and I'm like and the, then the movie goes on later when you just start thinking these things and you're watching the movie and you're like wait. The only thing is shown to that baby is it's umbilical cord. When the baby dies inside her womb, they, they spin that, they spin that umbilical, he cuts the umbilical cord and he spins it. And you're going, why would they show those two things? Because they're making a comparison and contrast between those things. So when you start to see a a very, a movie, which is highly, um, Devoted to images because some movies are devoted to words. Some are devoted to emotions and and dialogue and all that kind of stuff But 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 Mad Max is a movie that's completely devoted to telling you a story through images And when you start to see how these images start to play off each other like for instance You start to see that thing, but then you go well Mas- Max wears a mask. He wears a um, He's got this muzzle that's put on his face and you go. Well, there's another guy who wears a mask And it's a Morton Joe, he's got a kind of a muzzle on his face, but it's actually a muzzle, like a dog muzzle. It's like a, it's a lion's, you know, snout or something like that that's on his face. And you go, there's these two central characters who both have masks on their face that are kind of in opposition to each other. So when you see these people start to do those things, you start to recognize symbolism. And so I started thinking about doing a video on or uh, doing a blog post on how Mad Max is doing sexual inversion. Uh, so he is actually identified with the females, which is a pretty popular thing today. I mean, the idea of, of, transgenderism and all that kind of stuff. And I thought that's exactly what Mad Max is doing. You know, they're making Max into a female. So he identifies with their role, giving birth to Nux in the same way that Splendid will give birth to her baby. So when I started to pursue that, when I started to track that down and think there's something here, I started watching the film some more. And all of those things started coming together. I remember, um. I remember realizing that all of the bird imagery um, that was one thing that came together was there was all this. So that Max eats a lizard, kind of like a bird of prey. He's very quick, like a bird. He tries to fly from captivity, like a bird. War boys. He's placed in a, um, a um, cage that looks like a bird cage and the gals are even imprisoned in what looks like an aviary. Remember this? You remember this, Marcus? Yeah. And in the middle of that aviary is this little thing. It's like a little dish that has water in it. And I mean, there's lots of different, li- these little things. And then obviously there's Nux's uh, dashboard, which has this bobbling bird's head. So all those different things kept repeating themselves. And I'm like, oh, and there's birds here. There's birds here. There's birds here. And then I realized, well, what's Max? What's that mask on his face? It's the bobbling bird's head on, the ma- on Nux's desk. I mean, his dashboard. And I realized that the, the, the bird the phoenix, the rising from the ashes, was in contrast to what a Morton Joe was. This bird is versus the phoenix, which is movies do that all the time. You have two opposing characters who have different character traits or represent two different ideas, and sometimes that's expressed physically as in a symbol, uh, but you know, oftentimes it's expressed in more thematic terms. But in this way, I thought, okay, so bird versus, that's interesting. So we got a bird imagery and, and and stuff. And then I thought, you know what, you know, what really seems really odd here is that everybody has to receive a mark in this movie. You know, at the very first image, one of the very first images is them taking that, that brand and branding people on the back of their necks with that kind of skull type imagery. And I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm not wanting to jump to the Bible too quickly because I, I don't do that. But after seeing more than that, I was like, "Okay, so there's a mark, and that guy certainly looks like a beast. Um, so a mark of a beast. I'm going. There's something. Might there might be something here? Well, when you start looking at what a what, uh, what Mad Max is, it's a post-apocalyptic film, right? And when we use the term post-apocalyptic. That word apocalypto comes from the word apoco- uh, apocalypto, or uh, which is comes from the Greek, or is, is refers to the book of Revelation. Revelation is the apocalypse. That's why we call the literature post-apocalyptic, because it's after the end, after this revolu- revolution-type uh, experience. Um, so, but Mad Max isn't just a post-apocalyptic film. It's the telling of the apocalypse itself. It's a retelling, and if you look at that, I mean, what's Jesus in the apocalypse? Book of Revelation. He's depicted as a lamb, and that lamb is in opposition to a beast. Well, I mean, in this movie, it's a, it's a bird in opposition to a beast. I mean, it's very uh, kind of similar imagery with the mark of the beast and everything like that. Um, then my wife, I think my wife really brought it home, and I hadn't realized this, but uh, I'm just watching the film, and I said, you know, I'm telling her about this idea. And she said, you know, you know the citadel, right? She goes, well, that's like the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. And I was like, oh, I didn't even see that. I'm like, no way. I was like, you got these high things and you got the gardens on the upper part. And I'm going, I mean, the high, it, it, Babylon is such a central figure in the book of Revelation, even though, I'm just going to say this, even though the hanging gardens part is not part of the book. But the word Babylon is and in popular popular parlance and popular understanding, Babylon is tied to these hanging gardens. So when you put those two images together, you go, how would you depict Babylon to a bunch of people who didn't know? Well, you, you depict them kind of like that, high cliffs with some gardens at the top. So um, then obviously, then, then came in the two-headed lizard at the very beginning, um, where Max stomps on that two-headed lizard and then eats it. Now, that, um, those two aspects were, came, Uh, pretty interestingly because I watched that film and the first time I watched that film when it said uh, you're a crazy smig and you eat schlanger Mm -hmm. when she tells Max that not being Australian and I think most of the world saw who saw Mad Max are not Australian I was like what's a schlanger now I completely could understand that it probably it's a pejorative and it probably means you know, you eat that thing that we all know what it means. You know, that, uh, you know, you eat, you eat a phallus, you know, or something like that. So I got that. But when she said you eat something, which I did not have the direct meaning to, it was like a foreign language. She just said a foreign word to me. The first thing I did was to try to seek for an answer. And that answer and seeking that answer drew me back to the one thing that we all saw that Max ate. And it's the only thing he eats in the entire film, which is that little lizard at the very beginning of the film. So you're like, Sch- uh, Schlanger, lizard. That, that possibly could be what it means. You still don't know because it could be either one of those things. Now, everybody I've told this to since is, you know, they always tell me, I, I think I probably get once a week people on my channel, you know, they comment, hey, didn't you know, you crazy fool, that Schlanger means, you know, penis? You know, an Australian is slang for penis. And I'm like, going, yeah, I, I get that, right? But, uh, but when Morton Joe, I mean, the only two people are called. And she, he says, you each, you each, um, you each Schlanger, and then she tells the same gal almost in the exact same way. Tells a Morton Joe calls him a Schlanger. So Max, if you, in your mind, Max eats Schlanger. Schlanger is a Morton Joe. Come on, you got a little deductive, you know, little deductive argument there. It's like <laughs> Max eats Schlanger. I mean, Max eats a Morton Joe. Max eats a Morton Joe. Okay, that's kind of interesting. So that image at the very beginning part of the film, where you have Max saying, you know, he's got this, this voiceover going on inside his head. And you see the, um, um, come on, you're, I'm going to totally, people are going to be upset with me because I'm trying to think of the name of the, his, his vehicle. It is, man, drive me crazy. It's going to drive me crazy. Anyway, you see his vehicle there. And Max talking and that little two headed, they start, he says, I start hearing voices and those voices are warming in his head and head and that lizard comes up and he stomps on that lizard and then sticks it in his mouth and eats it. Um, And then you see it close up with his bearded guy eating this lizard, that thing sticks in your head. And so often in films, um, the first thing that you see in a film, the first thing that you see becomes the defining metaphor, defining symbol for the entire film itself. Very important, very significant. And in this case, that becomes the defining element. And when you recognize that stomping on a lizard's head or serpent's head, you know, Genesis chapter three is the defining element for Jesus, all these things start to come together. So that's how it went for me. Um, and I think it's a corrective. I think ultimately um, people have called Mad Max a feminist film. Uh, which it has elements of feminism in it because you have a group of women who, um, who speak and have dialogue and everything like that, which is not the case for a lot of action films uh, and particularly any films that women, when men are present, speak to themselves rather than speak to the man. And in this case, Max doesn't have a lot of dialogue. It's more the women talking. And so people, particularly men, you know, this with this, you know, MGTOW, you know, uh, you know, you know, men going their own way uh, generation, they got very offended that the Max, a central masculine character would be so emasculated in his own movie. And I don't think that George Miller was trying to say uh, that in that way. People got offended, men particularly got offended because, oh my gosh, you've done that to a man, how dare you do that to a man? But George Miller is also correcting an element of feminism. To a great extent. He's saying there's two elements. There's a masculine and there's a feminine. And to say that feminism rises above masculinity or masculinism rises above feminism, he's saying we need to get, get beyond all that. And I think he's more of a complementarianism in that respect, an egalitarianism. He's talking about two different aspects of being human. and those act, And those aspects of being human require each other to survive so this war between the sexes is really what mad max is all about and we're trying to see this um this um resolution um of bringing that about and he sees it in a picture of marriage at the very end of the film i mean it's clearly a picture of marriage and he sees it being george miller was a surgeon i mean he was a he was an er doctor or i don't know if he was quite a surgeon but he was an er doctor before he became a a director he was actually met his first mad max film uh was a low budget, in the, not a low budget, it was quite expensive for the time, but it was an independent film, which he financed and everything like that, working as an ER doctor. So he takes this imagery of opening up the side of the woman, uh, and this relationship of exchanging of blood to become one with each other, and Max giving his name to, to, um, Furiosa at the very end. He gives her his name, which is, we, we recognize instantly. What is he doing? Even though it's not how, how we do it in, in marriage, he does give her his name. So we have this picture, and obviously we have the imagery from Genesis chapter 3. But the issue is, is that what does it take to survive? What does life take to survive? It takes a man and it takes a woman, and, and men have to lay down their lives for the woman, and the woman lays down the life, her, her life for the man. They do it both so that the child can live and survive. And in being coming, becoming one, that's how the world is renewed. That's how the world goes on. And to say that we can just go our own way, big town, men going their own way, or females going their own way saying, I need a man like I need a bicycle or, or fish needs a bicycle or whatever, Is George Miller is saying, no, 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 no. We come together, and he's very sacramental, very sacramental, very symbolic. Very um, when it comes to the meaning of marriage, the meaning of of men and women coming together to renew the world. So, and he does it through a picture of Christ, which is which is pretty utterly fantastic. So, uh, it's remarkable because you wouldn't see that movie and go, "That's exactly what." But then you go, "It's one." And this is what the remarkable thing is: for Revelation, Revelation is there, but it's like one degree or two degrees removed from it. So instead of a lamb, it's a bird. But it's still an animal, you know. Instead of a of a six 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 on the fore on the hand or the forehead, it's a brand on the back of the neck. Well, I mean, it's still there. Instead of a you know, it's all these different things. Instead of this, it's instead of a serpent or a snake, it's a two headed lizard. But it's still pretty close to say, yeah, it's the same thing. So we, we kind of see him being consistent throughout the whole thing that way.
0: So, uh, thank you for that, Matt. So uh, one one of, well one of my favorite movies of all time, actually, the Back to the Future. You managed to pair up with a castaway, which a lot of people might not have put those two together. I'm just wondering, what is it that drew you to those two films? And how did this revelation that they both speak to the same um, theme come about? And can you tell us more about what that theme is?
1: I don't remember where I got the idea, but I think it was really because I was look. I wanted to do a video on Castaway. I, I think Castaway is pretty profound. I, you know, there's some elements there that are pretty obvious. Like his name is Chuck Noland. Castaway is usually, usually when it refers to a castaway, it's one word, it's a noun. But the film is actually titled Castaway, two different words, which is an action. So his name in the movie is Chuck. Chuck is the action of casting away. So you're like, okay, well, that's pretty interesting. And then his last name was Noland, which means no home, no land. Um, so it kind of all gets together. So obviously the movie is trying to be symbolic or, or has some symbolic elements to it. So I had a, just went to it, just trying to figure out what it was. So I kind of asked, what would people find interesting about this movie? How can I make this interesting to people? Because people walk away from castaway, I don't think having many questions. They just watch the movie and they're like, that was good. But, not like couldn't, but it's not like No Country for Old Men where people walk away going, I got to look that up. Like they, they actually do a search saying, I need to know what the meaning of No Country for Old Men is. But they never do that about Castaway because Castaway is like, it's a survival film. You're like, oh, that's nice. But there's so many different elements there that you go, there's something there. So I think when I started watching it, and I saw how much it was devoted to time. And I started seeing the theme of time and how clocks are everywhere in the film. Clocks, clocks, clocks. And then I realized, you know, the person who, who directed the film is Robert Zemeckis. And, and I started thinking, you know, you know, if you remember the beginning of Back to the Future and how it goes along a wall of clocks, it, it's inside Doc Brown's you know, garage. And it goes along those things and, you, and it opens up with all of those clocks. And clocks are everywhere in Back to the Future as well. And I thought, well, that's interesting too. You know, it's the same director, you know, clocks, clocks. And I started thinking about the film itself and started going, there's a lot of similarities. Like the, the very beginning of the film in Castaway is they're in Russia. You know, I mean, it doesn't really matter, but I always thought it was kind of weird that they opened the film up in Russia. It's a survivalist film and it's in post, post, uh, you know, f- fall of communism. And um, it just seemed odd and so i started thinking about it and some imagery came together and like that's where the clock becomes really important because he talks about the clock chuck nolan talks about the clock in terms of a deity at the very beginning of the film he basically says it is a sin to lose track of time and he talks about time being a cruel taskmaster, and that we never turn our backs on it all of these different elements you're like going boy he puts it like like almost like it's a it's a living breathing god um and those elements of god being there i thought were pretty 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 interesting but but the point was is that i, I started thinking about those things and and how cast away it's how back to the future is a movie about the the cold war it's a movie about the cold war it's a lighthearted comedy about you know 1950s america versus 1980s america and 1950s america was deeply worried about the cold war and the soviets and all that stuff um, two and then in 1980s, the same thing with the Reagan administration ratcheting up um, our war on um, by building nuclear weapons. That was in the air that we breathed in the 1980s. And then you have this movie about a guy who build uses uses uh, plutonium to build. He was ordered to build a bomb. They wanted to buy, build a bomb, but instead he builds a time machine out of a DeLorean. And you're like, well, the DeLorean ends up being a bomb. It ends up being the thing that causes marty's world to go into this utter chaos and then you can kind of see that in castaway too where his devotion to time in a in a post-communist world where the russians have now been defeated you start seeing these elements i i, I can't know if i describe this very uh, uh you, you know all the so i'm telling you these things you already know because we, we've talked about this a little bit yeah but that, this is how i kind of piece these things together this is how, kind of how my mind works uh, one of the aspects of the film was I found very interesting was the fact that Marty at the very end of Back to the Future, he comes back to, at the very beginning of the film, he sees a black Toyota pickup truck and he says, boy, you know, wouldn't it be great to have one of those? He's a poor kid. His parents are poor. You know, he's never going to get that. He looks at this brand new Toyota truck pickup truck and he's like, he, he really wants to, to have that. And when he comes back from the past, he, he's fixed his parents' relationship. He's able to bring some kind of you know a better relationship than they had before he's made his father more of a hero than if his father was before and he comes back and his dad's kind of rich and powerful now and his dad has bought him the black toyota pickup truck so when marty gets dropped off by the delorean by doc brown he goes into the garage and he sees his black toyota pickup truck and he's like wow. he goes basically he throws him the key this is his truck he's going to take it out with his girlfriend and it's just it's just awesome so there's this moment in the garage with a black vehicle that happens in Castaway too yeah. when chuck comes back from being trapped in the island he comes back to his the, the girl that he he loved who's moved on without him and she says hey i kept that vehicle and they go out and it's a black jeep in the garage and they have this movement this this moment where instead of being reunited with his girlfriend, she's now, they're now separating from each other and he has to take that black pickup and drive away. So there's these elements, just like, uh, just like Fury Road has these things that are one degree, but slightly similar. Um, Back to the Future, I mean, Castaway seems to be following Back to the Future in the way that it's told the story. Another aspect, the major aspect of it, is how Chuck gets off the island and how Marty gets off the island which are both a race against time through using a mast from a vehicle that has to connect with a, with a moment of nature at a particular precise time in order to get to where they're going, to escape where they've been. Um, so it's pretty remarkable that way. Yeah, I think it's, fina- there's some things I want to, I want to actually return to it. There's some things that about God there that I think are really profound. And um, I don't know if you want me to go into those things, but uh, it's pretty remarkable.
0: Yeah, sounds good. Uh, d- should, we, should we do that now or do, or would you prefer to leave that for another yep. video?
1: Yeah, um, I, I think one aspect that, I, you know, that aspect of God, when I first watched the movie, the first thing I thought was, first I was in 2001, 2002. Um, I saw the film and I thought, that's kind of weird. I was like, a guy goes to a desert island, he's trapped there for four years and not once does he pray. Now, you know, I, that's, that might be because of my religious Christian perspective. I went to see this movie, you know, deeply religious. And I thought, when I think about life, I think that when people are alone, they, they, they talk to themselves. But, but oftentimes, they talk to God. You know, if there's a God out there, would you help me? You know, I don't know if you're there, but would you help me? You would think that a screenwriter would at least have written that into the film. Like, he's stuck there alone. He, at least he would reach out to somebody. But instead, he talks to what? A volleyball. volleyball for you know 45 minutes of the film you know so i thought it was very odd and for a while i thought that that wilson was god you know that 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 was what the film the point of the film was that wilson was god Mm -hmm. and i think that might have been my my thought when i first went to sit down to figure out this film like yeah that's probably what they're saying but in thinking about it um and finally figuring out what this movie was all about he gets to the island, when Chuck gets the island, he walks around the island for probably the first like 10 minutes. Hello, he's, he's yelling out, hello, hello, is there anyone there? Is there anyone there? And the f- interesting about how they did this film was there's lots of music and lots of activity and there's lots of sound effects at the beginning of the film. But when Chuck arrives on the, on the island, Roberts and Meckes basically only had sounds of a few things, the falling coconuts, the surf, uh, the wind, the weather but there was not one uh, bird or insect or living thing that you heard for the entire film. And all you heard was Chuck's voice and the sound of the wind, the weather, and the surf and that kind of stuff. And you don't, and also, also in addition to that, there's not one piece of music that plays for that long. So that's, that's, a, pretty, that's a pretty hard uh, thing to do. Mm-hmm. But yet you're captivated by it. Most people don't even recognize that until you finally, he gets back out of the ocean and he sees the whale. And for the first time, the music starts playing again. And you're like, oh, that's, that's really weird. You know, so the music starts playing. But anyway, so the aspect of loneliness on this island, is anyone there? Is anyone there? I think becomes an existential question. It's, it's, a, it's a question that is a prayer. It's not a prayer directly devoted to God, but this man did see elements of divine activity in time itself but when he arrives on the on the island that clock is broken his god is dead mm-hmm. and he has to come to terms with what life or reality is now bill Broyles, the the screenwriter of this film uh, it started this whole castaway started with with uh, tom hanks tom hanks wanted to um uh he, he thought it would be great to do a film about some guy trapped on a desert island tom hanks has got a lot of money a lot of ideas. So he hires a screenwriter and says, this is what I wanna do, let's do this movie. So he hires a screenwriter to come up with an idea. That's Bill Broyles. And uh, for three years, they work on the screenplay together, developing it, thinking about what the story could be about. There's lots of different choices, you know, who, how, where, where, when, how will you get off the island? But the interesting thing I found was I've read the original screenplay. Uh, the original screenplay doesn't come out like the, like the movie does. One aspect of the screenplay is there is prayer in the original screenplay. Chuck goes home to his family's house and they're religious and they sit down and they pray in the name of Jesus. They hold hands and they pray in the name of Jesus. And it says in the screenplay that he's very physically uncomfortable about what's going on because he's totally materialistic. He's totally devoted to time and he's not taking any of this stuff in. He's just like nothing about it. And that he also, it says in the screenplay, he goes outside and the stars are up in the heavens and he pays them no attention, no mind. So, so these are elements of the, that the film tries to express, but it does so in different ways. But here's another thing, an interesting thing. I've read a little bit about Bill Broyles, hard to find information on him. But one aspect I, I did find, I was reading, uh, these two guys that said they go to the same church. He's from Texas. I'm like, oh, well that, the culture, church, you know, maybe there's some element here. And obviously his, his, his screenplay had this element of spirituality in it. And yet the movie that I watched in the early 2000s didn't have any prayer in it. I thought it was totally devoid of spirituality because he's not praying. But the element of Chuck being a person who, who intentionally, not intentionally, but is blind, but is blind to spiritual things, blind to the world in which we live, that the more Fundamental silent in the silent moments. That's really what the film is talking about. Like our world has even ratcheted up since 2000, but the aspect of technology being something that is a replacement for our wonderment and relaxation and just boredom
0: mm-hmm. at
1: the natural world, being in the quiet, being in the silence. We are never in the silence anymore. Great for coronavirus, right? That's the one positive thing I think about the coronavirus right now. Mm-hmm. But but Chuck, um, he. So when he goes out there, he goes. Any, anyone there? Anyone there? No answer. And it's not. It's an existential question. That's why I think it's really ringing in our heads. But here's the interesting thing. This movie's about time. Let's just fast forward to the end. Fast forward to the end. Uh, that um, Chuck lands on de- December twenty fifth, twenty sixth. Remember, it's Christmas Day when he leaves. And he arrives on the island probably sometime either the next morning or early the next morning, sometime around you know the 26th. What's interesting is is that when you get to the end of the film and Chuck finds that um, that sail on the on the um, I'm sorry on the island, it's a basically a porta potty thing that's you know broken off. The thing that will get him off the island, the thing that he makes a raft out of, you know, to, a raft to get him off the island it shows a um i can't remember the name of the word but it's basically the, the course of the heavens which is an eternal sign it's it's a figure 8 um it actually has a word for it but it's the course that the sun makes over the course of a year um that it's this um figure 8 eternal sign for eternity but but chuck is marked out every month and the days in those months if you watch it he yes and that light and how he's done that is that light from the cave comes down through his cave and p- does a pinpoint thing in the morning so that every day he wakes up and he sees where this, the light of the sun is actually hitting a specific point in the cave. And he's traced that out over four years, four times to make that figure eight. But he's marked the months and he's marked the days. And if you note which the film does not come out and go, hey, like M. Night Shyamalan, hey, you know, there's something really significant here. But it's December 26th that that light pinpoints and then you hear about the sale. Now you have to see the movie multiple times to start to pick that up. But that says something. It says that four years to the day, four years to the day that Chuck landed on the island, he's released from the island. When the angel's wings land on the island remember he paints those angels wings on them they land on four years to the day now that's when you when you start to talk about that precise you start to get beyond random because when things become that that the likelihood that it would have been to the day seems significant seems important seems intentional now go back a little bit further where does chuck first see that pinpointed light coming through in his cave do you remember um I can't. <laughs> yeah. Am I going too long on this Marcus? If I if you want me to go on, I I
0: well, no this is good. I have all the time in the world as long as you do. I don't, I don't know how
1: long we oh we've been going a long time, haven't we? Has it seriously only been three hours? Two hours.
0: Yeah. I think two hours. Close to yeah.
1: Two hours. Yeah, we're getting close to the two hour mark. Well, we can leave it for another time, but let me just I'll just close it with this and just say that the first time he sees that pinpointed light coming through is the, the day that he wakes up after being battered by the surf and having to take refuge inside that cave. And that light that comes through the cave and opens his eyes is contrasted with his dead flashlight, which has died in the night because he left it on when he sought refuge in the cave. Mm -hmm. So the light of technology has died and his eyes are opened by the light of the sun opening his eyes after, after a storm has gone through. But that whole series of events, Begins with Chuck waking up in the middle of the night on the surf, on the surf and he's flashing his light at a picture of the broken, of the broken watch and a picture of his girlfriend. Um, and he's looking at her. And then he goes out to urinate in the ocean and he looks up. And on the horizon, he sees a light, a light on the, a pinpointed light on the horizon, which he thinks is a ship. And he takes out his flashlight, the flashlight, the light of technology, and he starts flashing at him. He goes, here, over here, I'm over here, help, 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 I'm over here. And he keeps talking to him until that light goes away. Now he gets into the raft, he chases after that light, but he's battered by the waves. And that's where he, he gets a puncture wound in his leg. He quickly goes back to his, that cave, falls asleep in that cave where his flashlight dies. And then what wakes him up? that same pinpointed light, because it's not the light of a ship that's on the horizon, or it could be a a ship on the horizon, but the light that he wants to get to, the light of technology has died, and it's the light of the heavens that are now opening his eyes. So it's a contrast between what he was trying to get to, what he was trying to obtain, what what he couldn't understand, and God saying, here I am. that's that that's the message and it doesn't it's not it's not signs it doesn't come out but but it definitely is there and if you watch the film and you say when chuck arrives at the end those crossroads and he looks at the crossroads and he goes boy how every road led me to this it's not necessarily also what road will he choose remember Mm -hmm. because he sees that girl he already sees that girl and he goes you know, he's looking to go that way. And you're like, come on, we know what road you're going to choose. He's not saying, am I going to go this way? Am I going to go this way? Or am I'm going to go this way? He looks down every road and goes, man, how did every road lead me to this? And that's the, more, that's the more safe and secure feeling. Rather than life being chaotic, rather than life being out of his control, he realized just like the the, the poem, I think that this might've been on Bill Broyle's mind too, when he wrote the thing, but that, that old poem, uh, Footprints, that when you, you look back in your life and you see, a set of when it got really hard, I only saw one set of footprints in the sand. And God says, well, that was when I was carrying you. Mm-hmm. And that's the message of the film. When he arrives at the end, he realizes that someone carried him to this moment and that he was led the entire time and that he wasn't supposed to be with Kelly that somehow he was supposed to be here at this moment in this place and it all worked out in the way that God had pre- planned and prepared him for. So I think that's the message of the film.
0: Amazing. Thank you, Matt. Uh, this conversation could go on for hours. Yeah, i would be more than happy to do that, but uh, I guess we'll have to do a follow-up video then.
1: Yeah, I'd yeah, love to. And I'm sorry I go on and on. I'm not a very quick, think- uh, quick talker or thinker. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry about that.
0: No, it's been most enjoyable and I'm very grateful. I see the in behind you. There is gratitude. I certainly feel gratitude towards you for yeah. <laughs> spending two hours <laughs> telling us about your channel. Um, anybody listening, I'd encourage them to check it out immediately, to watch all those videos. And there's a few more that we never got through today, which we can hopefully do in a further video. But uh, I'll leave the links in the description. And um, subscribe, like all that usual stuff. Marcus,
1: I I have to say, I'm grateful to you, man. That's, you know, this thing's up there for you, man. I really appreciate (laughs) you. I was talking to my wife about you this morning and saying just what a networker you are and how much you have brought together so many uh, people who may not have been together themselves. And you've been that, uh, that person that's doing it and you're doing a phenomenal job. So thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Matt. And God bless you. God bless you.